All right, so turn with me in your Bibles, please, speaking of the Psalms, to Psalm 1. So for those of you that are visiting with us, what we do is we read chapter by chapter through the New Testament. And when we're done with the New Testament, then we, then we include the Psalms in our New Testament slot. And that balances out the reading of the Old Testament on the one hand, the New Testament with Psalms on the other. It takes about three and a half years, two chapters every Lord's Day, to read through the New Testament and Psalms. And some of the Psalms we double up on because of their length. Um, but then uh, other Psalms, obviously like 119, we don't. <laughs> but then also uh, it takes about seven years to get through the Old Testament, a little bit longer than seven years. So we have a system that is somewhat matched with the three and a half approximate on one side and seven on the other. So that's why we do this. So now rather than going back to Matthew chapter one, we'll go back to Psalm one and we'll read through the Psalter and then we'll go back to Matthew chapter one. All right, with that then, Psalm one, verse one, hear now the inerrant, infallible and inspired word of God. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, that bringeth forth his fruit in his season, his leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper." The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind driveth away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his most holy word. We might ask the question, well, how do you introduce the Psalter? There is so much complexity and diversity and, um, and unity in this book. Let's go ahead and, and do a, a, an introduction to the Psalter, to which your appetites for our reading. So we remember that, uh, that the Psalter has been divided into five different books. And, that, and, and we say it that way because there are four doxologies and then a crescendo. There's a doxology at the end of 41. It ends in amen and amen. 42 through 72 ends in amen and amen. The prayers of Jesse, the son of David, are ended. 73 through 89, Psalm 89 ends in amen and amen. Psalm 106 ends in amen, hallelujah. And then we have the crescendo of praise ending in hallelujah at the end of Psalm 150. And so some have seen a division of five books in the Psalter. There are different characteristics to those books uh, in authorship and other such things. So um, we want to talk about the witness of the titles of the Psalter. Remember that in, uh, in your Hebrew Bibles, the title of the Psalter is actually verse 1. It is, the, is, it is inspired text along with the rest of the text of that psalm. It's obviously not to be sung. It is an introduction, but it is an inspired introduction. Uh, 
Now this is very important for us to remember. The titles, um, they add uh, historical details to, to the psalm in some cases, which are not found even in the biblical narratives. And, um, and so what would we say about these? That they were invented? That's just silly, right? God's word is what it is. It's the inspired word of God. Uh, they attribute authorship, and always an important consideration with regard to canonicity, but also a help in interpretation, especially when we have those historical details. And the New Testament affirms the titles as authentic when we see the title of Psalm 110 appear in Matthew 22, 41, Acts 2, 25, Acts 13, 32, uh, citing uh, that David wrote Psalm 16, Romans 4, 1 through 8, cites from Psalm 32 and the title and so on. And then Hebrews 4, 7 attributes Psalm 95 to David, which in the Hebrew is an orphan psalm. So we learn a little bit more from the inspired authors as to the authorship of Psalm 95. All right, so as far as the authorship is concerned, we have uh, 73 plus Psalm 95. So 74 uh, psalms attributed to David, one attributed to Moses, 12 to a gent by the name of Asaph, 10 to the sons of Korah, Two are attributed to Solomon, and it's difficult to know whether or not they are written by Solomon or for Solomon. It's hard to know exactly. Uh, Haman and, and Ethan also uh, get one apiece. Haman, Ethan, and Asaph were singers in David's court. The sons of Korah, whenever we read that title, we want to make sure and remember the great mercy and forgiveness of God, because not all of Korah's sons were slain with him in his rebellion, but they lived on as Levites to write psalms and to play instruments, as we read in the Old Testament. So that makes 50 or 49 psalms what we call orphan psalms. And an orphan psalm has no title uh, to it, but, and this is my own uh, understanding, uh, there are some that appear in, for instance, what we would call a Davidic cycle or a Mosaic cycle. And so the Psalms perhaps were grouped together by Ezra uh, according to their authorship, although they didn't have a, a title that went with them, but they were put in a, in a grouping uh, per, uh, pertinent to the, the head of that grouping, which would be, say, a Psalm of David or a Psalm of Moses. Um, in Psalm 90, right, that's the Mosaic Psalm. People ask us all the time whether or not we're going to sing uh, Moses, right? They're, they're thinking Exodus 15. I always tell them, yeah, we sing Moses. We sing Psalm 90. That's Moses, right? But there, but there are other psalms that follow Psalm 90, some of which could very easily be mosaic, especially as you would consider the context. And when we get there in our reading, we'll look at that. What types of psalms are there? Well, I have six down. And, and again, these are in the titles. There's the Hebrew term mizmor, and this would designate a song probably accompanied by some sort of plucking instrument, mizmor. Then there's a shear, and that's just a regular song without any musical accompaniment. Uh, uh, accompaniment. There's a maskil, and that's a didactic or contemplative psalm of instruction. There's a miktam, and that's a golden psalm. From the Hebrew word for gold. There's uh, a tefillah. 
That's in the title. And a tefillah is a, is, a, uh, is a prayer. And then there's a tehillah. Tefillah and tehillah. And tehillah means praise. Okay? And so the title of the Psalter in Hebrew is Sefer Tehillah, which means a book of praises. All right, so then uh, there are also psalm titles that have some uh, remnants of musical instruction, right? So we have Labnatseach, and that's the one that teaches us that this is for public worship. It was to the chief musician, and he was to incorporate it into the praise of the church. Then there's a Neginot, Nehilot. These are stringed or wind instruments. There's a Shemnit coming from the Hebrew word for eight, Probably an eight-stringed instrument. Then there's those that are that are uh, sung that are alamot. No, not alamod, children, but alamot, and that means to the lifting up of the voice. Okay, and then we have the mahalat, and that's a grief or dirge type of a tune. That's a lament. We also have some what were perhaps in in the time of writing. Uh, familiar melody indicators. Uh, one of the psalms that we sing is is Almut Laben, or Upon the Death of the Sun. Now, we nobody really is sure exactly what that means. It may refer to the title of a tune or something else. It's hard to know. And then we have this wonderful term, Salah. And what is Salah? Uh, once again, I, I, I think the best understanding of that is that it, it was present when the instruments were played in the temple and there was a pause in the singing and the instruments played on for a moment. In other words, it was a time to stop and to reflect on what you had sung. And so whenever we see Salah, that is most likely a musical notation telling us to stop and contemplate what we have just sung. Okay. Uh, as to the date of the writing, well, if Moses wrote Psalm 90, I believe he did. That's something like 1450 B.C. And if the Psalter is closed down by Ezra, put in its final form by Ezra at the time of the, uh, of the Restoration, so that's about a thousand years of writing psalms. So they compass around a thousand years, although we would say that the explosion of psalms took place under David. Okay, and that's about... 500 years before Ezra, approximate numbers. Um, the theology of the, of the Psalter, oh, beloved. Luther was right. He, just, you know, he called the Psalter a little Bible. Every particular doctrine of Scripture you'll be able to find in one form or another in the, uh, in the Psalter. Uh, we, we make note of the robust Christology of the Psalter. The Psalms are full of the Lord Jesus Christ. For those are critics as exclusive psalmists that tell us we never sing the name of G-E-E-Z-U-Z. Right? We never sing, we never vocalize that sound. We don't. That's true. But we sing all kinds of terms that mean the same thing and are indicative of that same person, Christ. And we'll see that as we go most of you are familiar with many of those places. So all the heads of theology are apparent in the Psalter, re rendering it a book fit for all ages of the church. 
It has been called the distillation of both testaments, possessing the theology of the God of heaven. And then one more thing that the Psalter does is it lifts up the Torah, the law of God. It lifts it up to us over and again. What kinds of psalms are there? Well, there's royal psalms. Speaking of the kingship of Messiah, there are penitent psalms. Speaking of sorrowing for sin and pleas for mercy. There are psalms of praise or hallelujah psalms. Hallelujah is a Hebrew, it's one word. We need several English words to say it. And it's praise ye, all of you together, the Lord. Hallelujah. Yah, there is short for Jehovah, right? And hallelujah is all of you together, praise. Okay, so that's what the word hallelujah means. Uh, we have psalms of pilgrimage. We're singing them right now. The psalms of ascent. Those were the pilgrim psalms that the travelers three times in the year to Jerusalem sung as they were on the way to offer their offerings. There are historical psalms where history is handled uh, didactically. There are imprecatory psalms where the enemies of God are brought under his judgments. There are covenantal psalms where the covenant of, and mercy of God comes into focus. And we might also say that this robust Christology of the Psalter, that each of these kinds of psalms finds their expression in a, in a Christological fashion. The penitential psalms represent the suffering of Christ and the imputation of our sins to him. The royal psalms speak of his reign as our king. The imprecatory psalms speak of his judgment. The praise psalms speak of his great love for and the magnifying of his father. The Torah psalms speak of his great obedience and the historical psalms have Christ's instruction to his people to their, uh, pertinent to their own history. So all of these things are, are on full display in the Psalter. The collection of the Psalter, book one was probably collected by David himself and preserved and used by later kings. Book two, uh, collected by David and probably finalized by Solomon. Book three, perhaps during the time of Hezekiah and later Josiah. Books four and five are more difficult to pin down, but in books four and five we have psalms that are obviously post-exilic. They are psalms after the return of the captives from the exile. Uh, so that would have been you know, somewhere around 510 or into the 5th century B.C. Okay. Um, so who gathered the Psalter? We believe that Ezra, the scribe, um, was the finalizer of the Old Testament in its form that we have today during the days of the Restoration. And uh, Dalich... Um, Franz Dalich, the German uh, commentator, will say this. The collection bears the impress of one ordering mind, for its opening is formed by a didactic prophetic couplet of Psalms 1 and 2, introductory to the whole Psalter, and therefore in the earliest times regarded as one psalm, which opens and closes with ashray. Ashray is that word translated blessed. Uh, and its close is formed by four Psalms, 146 through 146. 50, which begin and end with hallelujah. The opening of the Psalter celebrates the blessedness uh, of those who walk according to the will of God in redemption, which has been revealed in the law and in history. And the close of the Psalter calls upon all creatures to praise this God of redemption, as it were, on the ground of the completion of his great work. One final point before we introduce Psalm 1. What are the uses of the Psalter? Number one, the Psalter is for singing. Don't let anybody tell you differently. The Psalter is for singing. 
It is to teach God's people how to worship, directing all their thoughts, affections, and voice to the Lord. It is to teach the people of God how to think about persecution and oppression. It is to teach God's people how to pray in such times of deprivation and in plenty. It is to teach God's people about the confession of sin, justification by faith, the gospel, their Messiah, to show the antithesis between good and evil, the upright by faith and the wicked. In short, it is nothing, uh, there is nothing lacking in the Psalter to teach the people of God everything they need to know in their lives as a worshiping people. Well, that's the introduction to the Psalter, a little longer than some of the other introductions, but it's, a, it's certainly a unique book. Well, let's go ahead and dive into the text. I have the first, well, it's, it's a very short psalm. So, um, first of all, we talk about the, um, the man. Uh, he has three negatives and two positives. The, the, the three negatives are three things that he doesn't do, and the two positives are two things that he does do. Let's take a look at this great man here. And if we might want to get a little Christologically Uh, bent on this we might say that this is indeed the description of Christ the ideal man and then all those who follow him and how is he characterized first of all um, the word blessed is in the plural which is something I hadn't noticed until this tour through the word blessed is in the plural ashray is a plural construct but the man is singular and so commentators would, would point us in the direction of, a, of sort of a majestic plural, that the blessings upon blessings upon blessings belong to a man that is involved in these three negatives and these two positives. Blessing upon blessing. We pray, Lord, bless me, don't we? And we rightly ask for his blessing. But by blessing, we don't mean when we talk... When we talk that way about human beings, oh, I want your blessing on this. No, 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 not like that. That's not the blessing that we want. What we want is we want the Lord's favor upon us. Okay, well, here's how we get it. We're going to jump in right here with Psalm 1, and we're going to learn how. How to, if we can speak you know, in a very human fashion, how to draw down the blessing of God. First, three negatives. The first negative is um, he does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly. To walk is the conduct of the life, right? And the word for counsel there, the Hebrew means counsel, (laughs) advice. That's exactly what it means. So he does not turn to the world nor to the ungodly for his counsel. His walk is not according to their counsel. The course, the tenor, the direction of his life is not governed by the advice and counsel of those who know not the Lord. Oh, beloved, there is great truth in that, isn't there? Okay. Secondly, he does not stand in the way of sinners. Okay. The way would be the way that they travel and to stand would be, that would be the place where you affix yourself. He doesn't stand there. That's not where he stands. He does not stand in the way of the sinners. In in the life that sinners live, you will not find him standing there. It is more intensive. It has a 
broader requirement, right? One might stand, but not walk in that way. Still, he refuses even to stand in that way. His thesis, his paradigm, he does not take his stand with sinners. And then sit in the seat of the scorner. He does not sit there. He does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly. He does not stand in the way of sinners. And he does not sit in the seat of the scornful. The word for sit here is moshav. Moshav. And sometimes the the Hebrew word, I'm sorry, moed. Sometimes the Hebrew word moed is is put for uh, like a council of elders that sit in judgment. And so his judgments, his sitting, his resting, it is not in, it is not uh, alongside those who scorn. So he avoids, it's a threefold avoidance of the counsel of the ungodly, the way of sinners, and the seat of the scornful. He partakes of this triple avoidance, now a twofold positive partaking. He has a different point of view and therefore a different way of living. He delights in the law of God and he meditates upon it all day. And so the first is his affection and the second is, is his practice. May I say that, uh, that sometimes the Lord works on our hearts inside out and sometimes outside in. Right? Sometimes both of those directions are true. The Lord is able to work in both of those ways. And so what I'm trying to tell you is don't wait for the delight in the law of God to meditate on it day and night. Meditate on it day and night and ask the Lord to put the delight in your heart so that that meditation becomes more sweet, more delightful, and you run to it more quickly. Understand? Sometimes we, well, if it's not a desire, then it's going to be a hypocrisy, right? No. No, that's not how you advance in holiness. That's not good spiritual exercise. Spiritual exercise is understand what the command is and endeavor to be about it. Let the Lord work on your affections. That will come. If you belong to him, beloved, that will come. We have no doubt about that. We have God's promises on that. Okay? So what does he say then? He delights. It's not, um, it's not just religious feeling on his part. It's not even his own sincerity. But he delights on something other outside of himself. He, it's this objective law of God that he meditates in day and night. And there's a division among commentators here as to whether or not by law we're talking about the entirety of Scripture or we're talking about only the commandments of God, the Torah. The word Torah is used. But sometimes in the Bible, especially in the Old and in the New Testament, Sermon on the Mount and so on, the word Torah, the word law is used, namas in in the New Testament. It's sometimes used uh, for the whole of Scripture itself. And I, and I certainly don't think it's a, it's a paltry understanding of this passage to say that this man is meditating not just on the commandments of God, but on the entirety of the word of God day and night. Now when the psalm was written, uh, we would have had less scripture than we have today. Still, whatever you have is what you take up with. Okay, and then it is a constant or a day and night Meditation. He does not content himself with religious thought only in the morning or only in the evening, 
but he gives his mind to the word of God all day long, practicing meditation, recognizing the hand of his kind father, thinking upon God's mercy in Christ all the day. He has not completed his devotions in the morning. His thoughts turn him to devotion to the Lord throughout the whole day. There are times of greater focus, most certainly, but nothing is apart from the Lord and his word and how he can serve him in everything. He has learned to pull that filter of scripture over his eyes, ears, and thoughts such that everything comes through that and nothing is considered apart from that. That, beloved, is the blessed life. Um, This is what he loves, the scripture, the Bible, so it dominates his thoughts. And every circumstance is sifted through that grid. Thus the difference between these two classes of individuals is seen in their beginning, in their living, and in their end. The beginning is how he watches over his thoughts. The middle is how he works it out in his living. And the end is where these two will finish their course. And what consequences there are for those who have followed each of these respective courses. And so uh, the author of this psalm, it is an orphan psalm. psalm. I I will suppose that it is perhaps Davidic. Notice, he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. Hmm. Does that sound familiar? That bringeth forth his fruit in due season. Hmm. Does that sound familiar? Did we read that in Revelation 22 today? We most certainly did. So this is also, uh, it's not only a a day-to-day look, it is a sort of eschatological look at this man as well. Where does he end up? He ends up by that pure river of crystal, partaking of the leaves for the healing of the nations. That's his end. And so, uh, his leaf shall not wither, whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. The ungodly are not so. They are like the chaff which the wind driveth away. Children, do you remember what chaff is? Remember that wheat uh, husk that we had here and it had that really long tail on it? And then we took it in our hands and we went like this and we broke all that off so that just that pure seed of wheat, that germ of wheat was left there. And then we went, not inside, ladies, please. It's okay. Sorry. We were outside. And all of that chaff went. Where did it go? Does anybody know? Nobody knows. It's gone. It's not here. And what do we have in our hands? That pure grain. Right? What are the wicked like? They're like the chaff that the wind blows away. And they're never seen again. No hope. No home. No inheritance, no place found for them. Therefore, the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous. All of this is done before the watching eye of God. The Lord knoweth the way of the godly, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Psalm 1. Let's stand and call upon the Lord in prayer.